Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. This is the Finos Open Source and FinTech Podcast, and I'm your host, Grizz Griswold, Marketing Manager for the FinTech Open Source Foundation, or we also call it Finos. Now, we're going to be working on changing up our podcast for 2021 a little to expand the type and the quality of the content we want to bring to you in this podcast. Forged out of the, uh-oh, covid what do we do when we can't engage people at in-person events that happen to everyone this year? Our podcasts in 2020 were based around a lot of the interviews that we did um, in our virtual meetups that we started this year. But in the coming year, we'll of course have interviews with Finos project leaders, members, and other industry thought leaders like we've already done. But this year, we want to start also including panel discussions and fireside chats that you may miss from some of our events Um, case studies and deep dives, and then we may just start including you in some of our Finos employee chats and office hours that we do with the community. Basically, we're trying to do anything that we can to help provide you with a little more value within the world of open source, financial services, fintech, and banking tech. And so this particular episode is a little preview of that. So at our last open source readiness meeting of 2020, we featured the first in a series of collaborations with InnerSource Commons to promote best practice around InnerSource in financial services. Now, if you haven't heard of it, InnerSource is the application of open source software development practices to internal software development projects or inside companies. It's a great way for companies to increase collaboration within their organization and for developers to gain skills that will Uh, make them more effective participants in open source projects. Now, we've definitely found this helpful within financial services, especially in banks that are looking to venture into open source but may not quite be there yet. We had guest panelists from InterSource Commons, Deutsche Bank, Capital One, Lloyd's Banking Group, and of course, Finos. So check out our show notes for a complete list of panelists and bios. So sit back and learn as our friend Denise Cooper, who's the president and founder of InnerSource Commons and a multi-decade veteran of the open source world, leads a discussion on InnerSource patterns for the financial services industry. All right, Thanks fantastic. for joining us. This is fantastic. And um, this is the first time that InnerSource has been a topic at the Open Source Readiness. Um, in fact, you might even call this the beginning of the InnerSource Readiness uh, practice. Um, Aaron Griswold, who has been scheduling the Open Source Readiness, and I did a talk about InnerSource earlier in the year that was really popular. And then we've done two now um, FinTech panels at open, uh, InnerSource Commons uh, summits that have also been super popular. So we um, agreed with James and uh, we as me and Claire agreed with James that it would be a good idea to uh, put together a more regular practice. So we'll be doing this once a month now, alternating with open source readiness meetings. And um, th- this time, as we get started, we have uh, great guests. Uh, representing some of the banks that are um, supporting us in our creation of the InnerSource um, SIG, or Special Interest Group, within Finos. So that proposal has been standing in Finos for a little while. The board's going to talk about it in January, and hopefully they'll decide to go ahead with it. But in the meantime, we're starting up the regular cadence of meetings. So that's now everybody knows everything that's happening. <laughs> I'm going to give the panelists um, just a couple minutes to each introduce themselves, um, starting with Daniela, please. Thanks, Denise. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Daniela. I work for Deutsche Bank. I'm a developer there. I used to work on our internal InnerSource platform a couple of months ago, and now I'm kind of shifting more towards working with public cloud, but I'm still involved in the InnerSource work as well. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. All right. And uh, Arthur? Sure. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Arthur Moulton. Uh, I'm a distinguished engineer at Capital One. I work on our uh, CICD platform. That's one of the largest inner source projects here in Capital One. And uh, we recently talked about our journey uh, growing that inner source platform. And I'm happy to share some of our learnings. Yeah, you have great stories. Thank you, Arthur. 
Uh, all right. And then lastly, um, Anthony, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, uh, good morning, good evening, uh, depending on where you are. My name is Anthony Vaca, and I work with uh, RBC, uh, Royal Bank of Canada, and I've been with the bank for 16 years in uh, various development roles. And uh, my role is kind of different where than, the, than the other panelists, where um, I've changed my role to become more of a developer advocate uh, and lead up, like, and enhance our developer experience, which is primarily focused on building uh, an inner source culture uh, and participate more in the open source world with uh, with our developer community at RBC. Thank you so much. Uh, and I'm Denise Cooper. I founded Intersource Commons. Before that, I worked for uh, a little more than four years at PayPal, but I have a long history in open source. And I got interested in Intersource um, a long time ago before it was possible for it to take hold, mostly because of the, you know, open source hadn't won yet in the marketplace. And so it was really easy for people who were adverse to change to say that it wasn't going to work. So why would they waste time on it? Right. Um, but these days, uh, everybody gets it that open source is the better way to develop. And a lot of companies and even whole industries are trying to move in that direction. But PayPal, as an early mover towards open source in the fintech industry, was hampered by its own internal culture, which is why I brought up Intersource as a potential intermediary step to getting to open source. But I also see it very seriously as a sustainability thing for open source because we don't have enough open source developers yet. We certainly don't have enough people who know how to push culture um, or ch help change culture within the open source movement. And intersource work is a way for people to learn to do that um, without risking brand embarrassment because they've gotten it wrong. So um, that, with that beginning, I'd like um, our panelists to, to think of um, let's say the top three lessons that they've learned, and we'll go um, circle-wise through the lessons. Everybody will do one, and then we'll circle back around and do another set. Um, and I may comment in the middle. Is that okay with everybody? Yeah. Great. So um, let's see. Anthony, I'm going to start with you. Um, what's your top number one thing that you've learned so far in your involvement with Intersource? Uh it's truly community driven and having worked in previous roles where you have a, a mandate and if you find a you know i need to build a widget that has a front end back end uh something anything and then you find someone with a similar project uh in a bank uh, it's really hard to collaborate and when working with people um it, it, you know, you have different timelines, different you know, requirements and things can go awry. Um, I would say the, the biggest thing I've learned is uh, finding a few uh, early like-minded people who truly believe in this culture and uh, working and collaborating and building, you know, a common front-end framework, a common security framework. And if you build those small little building blocks um, early with the right people, uh, things can cascade and people will follow suit. So to me, it's all about the right people and, and finding uh, finding them and, 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 and I think success will follow. Thank you. That's definitely a big part of how we built Intersource Commons. So I feel you there. Um, great. Uh, let me ask Daniela next. So Anthony, you kind of stole the first one I was gonna say, but I was, I was just thinking, thinking it can be quite difficult to get people involved internally, um, especially to, to work on something that's, that isn't their day job um, per se. Um, from that, we found that it really helps exactly to find a small group who are actually quite passionate about the thing that they want to build um, in, a, in an inner sourced way, and then they can snowboard from there. Yeah, I see, we see that a lot in, um, in different places, the idea of putting together a guild or finding the people that are already super connectors within your engineering organization and giving them some kind of special blessing to be the people that own this message um, has been really useful uh, for lots of companies. It does depend a little bit on how everything's organized. So um, in general, when managers start giving their individual employees a hard time for contributing to something that's going to clearly help the company, 
Um, but in the near term, maybe take a little bit of time away from the prime directive of working on what they're assigned to. That's usually an indication that there's been a little bit too much uh, allowing the bean counters to run things. Um, matrix management and you only do the job you've been assigned to do can be really solo facing for individual engineers who are naturally curious and want to be involved in each other's work and particularly might be motivated to understand the bigger picture of how everything works together. And without permission to do that, it can be really difficult. And we've heard a lot of different mitigations for that problem come up in different places. We talk about this a lot at Intersource Commons, and I'm sure the fintech community would be very interested in the kinds of mitigations that are working in fintech. Um, let's uh, let's have the, the third little bit of conversation with Arthur on that, your first best. Yes, uh, maybe, maybe to follow on the theme, uh, I think the way to really, what we've found, the way to gauge that engagement or to get developers engaged and interested and excited about inner source projects is to foster the projects that scratch their own itch. So oftentimes, just like with open source, a lot of the most popular open source projects are somebody, a developer, she's having an issue with XYZ. Uh, she writes up a tool to solve that specific problem, scratching her own itch, and then shares it with the world. And everybody says, wow, I didn't even know that that was something I could scratch. And then now they're excited to use that tool. Um, we found the same thing. and and large enterprises have no end of low-hanging fruit that's uh, ready for, for ripe picking that can really um, motivate and engage developers by solving day-to-day -day problems that they have. So uh, that's one thing that we found helps an inner source project succeed and can start, motivate that, start motivating that um, community and growth. Thank you. Yeah, that is definitely a great idea. Um, open source, some, some people are just surprised to learn that open source is based on enlightened self-interest, meaning that you can't really get over the hump of doing the extra work unless it's really attractive to you. And either getting your job done a little faster or just exploring something new, those, are, those can both be examples of enlightened self-interest. So that is a really good way to get around that problem, Arthur. Thank you so much. Um, Okay, so that's one round um, to remember that it's all about community and that fundamentally this is about culture change. Whether you like it or not, that's the case. If, if your individual companies are not doing enough collaboration, if you have silos and ownership culture and not enough cross-company knowledge, then just opening the code is probably not going to be enough to fix that problem. You also kind of have to bless the practice of Intersource which is allowing people to contribute to each other's code bases as though they were open source projects, but inside of a firewall. So um, let's move on to the next round. And this time, so that was your first best tip. Um, this time, I think I'd like to hear the biggest challenge that you ran into, um, it, aside from the one we've just talked about. Uh, so assuming that you can find people that are motivated and interested, then what's the next thing that you, you've run into within your companies um, that you'd like to give other people a warning about? And um, we'll work backwards this time, Arthur, first. Sure. Oh, so many to pick from. <laughs> um, I mean, we, like again, to give that background, our, our project grew from uh, this little office in Toronto, Canada, that's actually why there's snow behind me. Um, we, you know, it was, uh, it, it really was to support a, few, a couple dozen, well, 60, 80 engineers. Uh, and it now grew to, you know, thousands of engineers across the organization. So I think um, one of the things to maybe keep in mind, uh, and, and one of the challenges that we've run into is not really focusing on the documentation as much as we should have. So when we had started, and as developers, we naturally just want to write the code. Uh, but the documentation is not only going to help alleviate the support burden, they'll end up crushing you eventually if the project becomes very popular. Uh, but it can also help with the contribution, right? If we're talking about how do we get more contributors and people engaged and interested, having clear documentation on what the contribution model looks like and ideally having some 
uh, consistency across your projects that can really help motivate developers uh, to contribute and also know what to expect when they do make those contributions. Great, that's great. Um, I'm gonna say a little bit about documentation and my idea for intersource documentation, which still has not come to fruition, but let me describe it anyway. Um, Intersource is, is modeled on the way that Apache Software Foundation works. And I've been a member of Apache for pretty much since the beginning of time. Um, so I've had a long time to watch how that process has been successful. It was designed a long time ago when there was not very many tools for collaboration. And so they have a rule that everything that happens has to happen on the mailing list or it didn't really happen. So if you have a side conversation in, in public space, you have to turn around and say, okay, which one of us is gonna document this? Because if it never hits the mailing list, it never happened. And that ethic, has, uh, has created a durable archive of literally everything that's ever happened at Apache. So if you come in later and you need to understand why or how Apache has done something, you can research it and you can do it without taking down somebody else's productivity. Now in modern companies, people use a hegemony of tools and that's also happening in open source now. So you have Slack, you have the notices in GitHub, you have uh, maybe a wiki or two somewhere, you definitely have email, you have lots of places where things are being discussed. And unfortunately, those places don't lend themselves to the same kind of building a natural archive of documentation. But I will say that documenting how you do something, if you ask an engineer to write about their code as a, in prose form as documentation, what you get will probably not be very useful because they have a hard time knowing what someone else is gonna to need to know. But if they have to explain it to somebody else through the inner source process, and you capture that conversation and you force them to write it down, which is um, not comfortable in a lot of situations, especially if you have a mixed group where English isn't their first written language. But if you can get them to write it down and you save those writings, then the next person that needs to educate themselves about a similar topic can learn a ton without taking down anybody's productivity and just read the archive, right? And that to me is one of the huge advantages of Intersource. I think that's where most of the velocity comes from in, because initially Intersource is more work because you have to get somebody to spend time explaining how something works. And there are lots of good reasons to do that because it's an actionable bit of explaining as it's only addresses the one little patch they're trying to file. Um, over time, you get an accretion without as much pain as sitting down and trying to think it through start to finish. So that's a really good point that documentation and also documentation about how you're doing intersource is important to accrete. But you can do that through this natural process of, of accretion of conversations if you remember to put that ethic of writing things down. Um, okay, let's next ask Anthony. What's your next best? Uh, so I'd say for starting out uh, was really getting uh, and We had a good set of developers in the beginning. You know, just you know, engineering and sharing makes sense. Uh, just trying to get the process and getting the folks from our cyber compliance people on board and understanding how uh, we can make intersource or open source inside of a bank uh, work, and uh, putting the rules and processes in place. And uh, after a few uh, you know, weeks and, and months trying to figure out how this could work, uh, that was, uh, I, I, it still is um, a key component of how Intersource works at RBC. Uh, and again, nothing, you know, we, we, when we share code, we, we don't include passwords, like, you know, just good, good engineering practices. We don't include client data, again, good engineering practices. Uh, and we make sure we have a good pipeline to production. So. Um, those are our, our core principles that we, we follow, and, and I'm, not sure, I'm sure other companies have their own core principles, uh, but I think that was a, a big learning and, and good collaboration with our cyber team on how to do uh, inner source uh, that can scale across the organization as a big learning for us. Yeah, we, we advocate in the writing that we've done for inner source commons, one of the things that we advocate is documenting the core working agreements between parties in an intersource engagement. 
we think of it like the person that owns or the group that owns the silo, we call them the hosts and the, the group that is trying to contribute to the silo, we call them the guests. And just like in a, any human interaction, there are things that the guests are bound to by, you know, politeness. There are things that the host is bound to by politeness. But making those explicit in an engineering context can be really helpful. And we do that in our file, um, memorializing agreements between the two parties. But also we make pointers to documents about coding style, documents about planned uh, regular practice, where you feel comfortable that you know security is being considered. Then sometimes those increased um, articulations can really help with the code review. In most shops, even if there is required code review, it's just a perform a thing. People rubber stamp each other's code because they don't feel responsibility. But if you make it somebody's job to review the code, we call them trusted committers, then it turns out you automatically get a bump in quality, but you also get a much safer code practice because they know those those um, requirements very clearly as they're reviewing the code. They're looking, is there adequate test coverage for our, our requirement? Um, is the code safe? In other words, are there, are there things in there that shouldn't be in public code? There, you know, there's lots of um, checklisty things that people look at when they're developing their mentorship practice. But over time, um, it definitely ups the practice. When it's somebody's job and they're going to get in trouble if the code that they're reviewing isn't good enough, all of a sudden real code review happens. <laughs> so, okay, Daniela, one more for you. So I would say we had uh, one of our biggest problems was we had a bit of a chicken and egg kind of situation between uh, do we build the culture first or do we build the tools that are going to help with inner sourcing first? Um, because as I think Arthur was saying earlier, there, there were lots of people in the bank that were building lots of tools that help fix the same problems, but it was very difficult to share that between a company that's in a bunch of different countries and has thousands of developers. So um, not to steal too much from my talk here, but we went for building out the tools first, and I will expand on that a little bit more afterwards. Yeah, thank you. We are going to have a longer talk from Daniela at the end of this session. And we're supposed to come first, but I'm a little cattywampus today from travel. So my apologies. We will get into that, I promise. Um, and thank you, Daniela and all for swinging with the way that I'm that I'm handling things here. But um, that's a really, really good point to make that you have to make choices. And in my experience, you do a little bit with the first experiment and then you regroup and, and build a little more, and then you do it again with a second experiment to see if you've added enough assistance. Um, you don't want to you don't want to make it such a smooth road that there's no room for improvement because that improvement might be somebody's um, enlightened self interest bit, right? So you want to encourage contribution and collaboration at every step, basically. Uh, okay, um, let's see. I think we might have time for one more round before we um, actually enter into Daniela's talk. So, um, all right, let's, uh, let's go through a third round. And this time I'd like to ask you to think of the one thing that um, you would tell somebody who was starting this for the first time that really surprised you and you weren't expecting. So can I get one of those from each of you? And this time I'm gonna start with Daniela cause you're gonna end up doing your talk next, okay? So one thing that, that really surprised surprised me, um, I think it was partially just how much was out there in the bank and how much people took the time to go out and build stuff for them, for kind of solving their own problems again, but kind of giving up their free time to do that and then trying to share that out with the community, kind of how much effort people who wanted to do it were putting behind doing that. And it was a, it was really nice to see that. Yeah, that's that's great to hear. I think I think that that's not an unusual thing. There are always a few people that really want to fix the playground. They really want to, and then they're going to find ways to try to do it. So if you can find them first, to everybody's first point, you're already ahead of the game. Um, and this is not a bad uh, impetus on people's part. You know, the the desire to make things better is a good thing. Uh, okay, let's do Anthony next. Sorry. 
Yeah, I'm gonna. So Danielle stole my one as as I stole her first one. Uh, yeah, in, it takes the the amount of willingness to make a contribution uh, to me for for like myself and 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 the, and the people that I work with. I'd say that's our our goal is to you know drive and and build our community. And I'd say they're the people that give us energy. Uh, I'd say the moment that someone stops collaborating or they see that this is not worth it, that's when I kind of get discouraged. But uh, it's been a great experience at RBC. We're, we have such a great developer culture and everyone just always wants to help out and pitch in and give their expertise and, and drive things. And that's been, you know, I'd say that's my energy that I wake up every day excited because I know we have uh, 10,000 employees at RBC, you know, developers willing to our community and help out. So. Yeah, that surprises me every day. Yeah, it's and and it also you you get the sense that you're really making their lives better, finding them permission for this thing that they have to do, <laughs> right? But also the whole company can can do so much better because of it. Okay, Arthur, what's your what was your big surprise? Uh, I guess for me the biggest surprise has been how hard it is to scale uh, InnerSource and specifically inner source projects. Uh, once something really takes off the deluge of issues support. And in, in addition, how complex and challenging it is to train up kind of the next set of uh, contributors and, and core contributors and people that'll work on, on your tool. Um, I think we found uh, in-person boot camps and working sessions, mobbing, uh, mob programming together have really been helpful, but it really is um, it, it really is very challenging to scale an inner source project to an enterprise level. Yeah, thank you so much for mentioning that. Um, we hear that over and over again, and it, this is my take on why I think that happens. First of all, it's um, usually an engineer to engineer pursuit initially. Sometimes the CTO will say, this is a great idea, so there'll be top-down support for it. But at the end of the day, it's, it's pairs of engineers working together. Most of those folks are not good mass communicators. And I'm making a blanket statement here. Of course, there are exceptions. But in general, your, your engineer is more comfortable talking to you know, another engineer, maybe two or three, um, not to an entire company worth of them. <laughs> and so... Our, our best advice is right after you've done your first experiment and you've proven to yourself that this could be beneficial, and we advocate that that first experiment be small, um, right after you've done that first one, engage somebody who knows how to do mass communication and put them on your team and get them working ahead of you on how to roll it out across the company. We had, at PayPal, we had to do some extraordinary last minute um, Hans Brinker you know, finger in the dike kind of um, uh, brinksmanship in order to get through the scaling process. Because one of the things that can happen um, in any cultural change is people will decide that they like it because it's on somebody's business plan, especially if it's the CTO's business plan. It'll cascade down and everybody in the engineering organization will suddenly be on their business plan, but they won't even rec recognize what it is really. And then you know, by the end of that year, they're already telling you that it doesn't work, but they still haven't practiced it. So we did a lot of educational tools work. And in fact, over at InnerSource Commons, there are four free tutorials, half hour each tutorials with a workbook to check comprehension. The first of those, the introduction to InnerSource was built literally to solve this problem of senior management um, using it as a buzzword without really understanding what they were engaging in. And that can be very helpful because um, some of the deluge that you that you get is just people asking how to do it or what to do or requiring training. So InterSource Commons exists partially to create those assets. And um, we do that in a sharing fashion so that nobody has to do it alone. So the community actually built those trainings. I, I got the money out of PayPal, um, but I didn't write a word of any of them. I, I did MC two of them, or, you know, I was a presenter in two of them, but they were other people doing the work because they needed it for their companies or they thought it was an interesting problem space they wanted to work on. So, yeah, I totally agree with you that scaling, you've got to plan for it as you start because it's going to take time. Hey, hi, Denise. Hi. 
Hi, Puya. I'm so sorry. No, no worries. Yeah, my my internet was having a bit of problem, so I was I was actually offline for a few minutes just now as well before I got, I just got connected back. Yep. So um, personally, I'm actually quite new to this whole um, journey of inner source. So I only started looking working on this, I would say about maybe nine months ago, and the first four to six weeks was you know just really getting my head around what is it all about and things like that. And I think one of the top learning for me is that. I've come to realize that inner source is what is really needed if we actually want to achieve um, self-sustainability. So I think initially, my in the beginning of my journey, I was fairly naive thinking that, you know, oh, we all just have to share our stuff, you know, let's just collaborate, share our stuff, you know, and get people to adopt. And as we reuse each other's stuff, you know, there's obviously impact, I know there's uh, benefits to the, to the organization. But then later in the journey, I realized that, you know, it's not just about sharing and getting people to reuse your, let's say, your tools, your projects, your framework. It's also opening up what you have and let other people re-contribute back to what you've done to make it even better. So I think that is actually one of the biggest, biggest thing for me. And that's just why, I, to me, you know, if we actually want to get to this self-sustainable stage, you know, in the source for me is, is really the way to go forward. Thank you. Yeah, no, I think it is too. I, I think it's really, really important. And I know that Lloyd's meeting James and talking about Lloyd's um, dabbling in this uh, was a lot of our impetus for joining Finos and getting interested in whether other banks were, were heading this way. So thank you so much. Um, do you have um, something, you said that you just gotten started, but have you been surprised about something yet? Yeah, so I think one other thing I was quite surprised is that there's a lot of engineers. They are really excited and they really want it and sometimes they feel a bit discouraged because they they felt that it's actually a very difficult thing to achieve within Lloyd's. I'm sure James probably can have seen some of those as well. So some some engineers they will still plow on and say, no, I'll do what I can to move forward. But some engineers they they come across a bit more negative. They they felt like okay it's something that is really great and you kind of get the sense that they felt that this is something that can maybe happen in an organization like you know like Red Hat or Google but they just don't see how it's going to happen in Lloyd's. So where my initiative is coming from is to try to really drive this movement and to get people to you know, to move towards that. And, and if a lot of things is a bit of a test and learn for us. So we'll try to see if there's a thing that's going to drive a culture shift and we'll just drive, try to get some learning from what we are trying out and testing out. Yeah. And cool. I think there's also another thing that has surprised me is that um, while some, a lot of engineers, they're very willing to share, but when you ask them to open up what they have, their repo, to let people contribute back, I think their reaction was like, you know what, I'm not quite ready for people to contribute back to my project, but I really want to share. I would really love people to adopt what I've done. I think it's so good. But the recovery contribution back is, is where some people is quite yes. nervous about. Yeah, yes. yeah uh, that's an interesting problem. The support yeah. is what I found as well as the, I just want to write this and I don't really want to support it after. So you kind of need those two together to have a successful inner source project. Sorry. Yeah, that, that fear of lack of support was a really big problem at PayPal. And so what we did was we negotiated a, a basically an SLA, a service level agreement from contributors um, so that it was written in the contributing MD that if you got a patch merged, you were on the hook when you contributed it to support it for 30 days after deploy. And um, the reason that we used the word deploy was because PayPal often freezes the code base around the holidays. So it might take three months before your code is really deployed. But if it falls over at that point, the silo that you contributed to isn't gonna be happy if you're not around to help fix the problem. So a lot of people look at contributed code as a puppy that you have to keep feeding. Uh, rather than a real gift, um, but it, we're trying to get them to the point where gifts of code are um, are graciously accepted, right? Uh, because that's kind of how open source works. So, uh, and you know, no, I'm not going to lie. Part of the de de design of inner source was about tricking people into doing open source inside, so that they would understand how to do open source outside. And uh, we know that works. We've seen that work. <laughs> So, um, but, but yeah, that's definitely a problem that people have to get over, especially if they're overworked in the beginning, especially if they feel like they don't, there's no time for them. All right, um, Daniela, I think this is your moment for the talk that you prepared and apologies again for skipping it at first, but I think it's going to be a really nice capper to the presentation. So anytime you're ready, I'd love to hear it. 
Awesome. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, we had a bit of a chicken and egg sort of problem where we didn't know whether to focus on uh, building the culture and the community around inner sourcing or starting to build out some of the tools that are going to help people do this. Um, and we actually went with the tools as a first starting point. So to jump right into it, uh, what we have done at Deutsche Bank was we have created a platform which aims to facilitate and encourage inner sourcing within the bank. Uh, it's called DB Open Source, uh, which in hindsight probably could have been called DB Inner Source, but we, I don't think we had the term when we uh, when we branded it. Um, and this here is a screenshot of how it looks today. So I'm going to talk for probably a little bit less than 10 minutes, and I'm going to cover a little bit about the history and how the platform works, um, what are the kind of things you'd find in it, uh, what features we have added, and how the community have responded to them and a bit about the future of where we hope the platform goes. So a little bit of history, it's actually been around for about six years. Um, it started off as somebody's side project um, and it went for a couple of hackathons before our team picked it up towards the end of 2019. Um, and the main goal of the platform was to minimize the amount of work that was created by different teams around, around the bank. So as we kind of mentioned in the panel system, uh, in the panel earlier, uh, developers would often face similar problems around the bank and uh, a few teams would end up fixing the same problem and they wouldn't have any way, any way to share their, their solutions with the rest of the bank. So, for example, when we transitioned to deploying containerized applications to OpenShift, um, there was quite a large learning curve for many teams to overcome. And a group of developers, they saw this and they created a reference implementation for an automated release pipeline. Um, and that, that pipeline was community-driven and community-created, and it has actually now become a usable pipeline in the bank, and it has quite a substantial community behind it, and a lot of teams build uh, use it. So there are a number of other bottom-up innovations like this, uh, and DB Open Source was intended to give these kind of projects a home where they could be easily discovered by everyone else in the bank. So. Before we jump into some of the features that you can see on the screen here, I'm just going to tell you quickly how it works. Um, we've tried to make it as simple as possible. So developers basically upload a manifest file into their repository, and that manifest file has some metadata, um, and then the platform scrapes Bitbucket and finds repositories um, with this file and uh, pulls them into the platform. So essentially, it's it's kind of like an index on top of Bitbucket, which highlights specific repositories. Um, the essence of the platform was already in place when we started working on it. However, we believed uh, it had more potential than it, than it was currently being used for. So we took inspiration from the kind of the open source world, looking at places like Google, GitHub, and Netflix's open source project websites, and we carried out some user engagement sessions. Um, we drew up a list of features that we thought would bring value to the platform, and we did this with uh, three personas in mind. So the personas that we that we were thinking of were developers contributing components, uh, developers looking to reuse components to uh, make some of their work a little bit easier, and developers looking to contribute to a community. So that's the one on the the bottom left here. Um, and this third one was an interesting one that we wanted to capture. So. This includes users who perhaps learning a new language and they want to contribute to a real project as you would in the open source world. Um, and we also have several internal initiatives which aimed to encourage employees to code. So for example, we have one which is aimed towards um, previously technical staff who have over the years kind of fallen into more of a project management or business analyst type role and now want to get back into coding. So we felt that the projects in DB Open Source were great for such users because they could engage with a community, they could contribute to a real project use case, but one which is perhaps not as critical as a central bank application. So to have a look at the features that we did to the platform with these personas in mind, um, for the developers who contribute um, their, their projects to the platform, we found that many were put off by the manual onboarding process. So we automated the generation of the manifest as much as we could, and we created an easy to follow onboarding guide, making it easier for them and also reducing the mistakes that would be made uh, with the manual onboarding process. Uh, we also added the ability to see which users are watching their components. 
as well as metrics such as the number of times that components have been viewed in a month, um, just so they could kind of gauge how the community is, um, is interacting with their projects. For the developers looking to reuse components, we added uh, categorization. So we would categorize, um, not, not we, sorry, developers who upload their components would categorize them by type, capability, platform, and business area, as, long, as well as the tags mentioned earlier. And this has allowed the platform to have better filtering and searching, which has become very handy as the platform has grown. So I don't know if you saw on the, on the front screen, but there was over 200 components in there. And if you're just searching through a long list, um, it can be quite difficult to find what you need. Um, again, we added the watch functionality for the users. Um, this allowed them to do two things. So first of all, filter out uh, the components they're interested in from those that they were not so interested in at that time. And also uh, they would receive email notifications when a component has had a new version released. So if this was something that they were perhaps using, um, if it was a tool that they're using in their project, they could they would know a new version is released and they could update if necessary. Uh, also the ability to review components. So we kind of saw some ideas from Amazon here and added like a five-star review feature. Um, and this was so that uh, users could kind of gauge the quality of components before they started using them and also to kind of provide some feedback to the original developers working on it. Um, finally, we noticed that the platform contains some stale components. So we added a, uh, an activity metrics to show how actively a component has been uh, is being developed. And for that third persona, which is people looking to contribute to a community, we added an icon, which we call the help wanted icon. Um, this essentially marks a component as one that is open to contribution. So the developers who have put it in the platform have actively said, yes, we would be happy to accept some contribution to this. And to include this icon, the developer would have to provide a contribute markdown file. And that file would explain everything um, that somebody external to the team would have to do to get involved. So stuff like where their Jira's are located, um, how, whether they should fork or uh, branch the repo and stuff like that. And this reduces kind of the internal, the initial hurdle of finding out how to get involved in the project and also encourages the development thing to the, the development team to think about this process and to outline it and how it works for them. And finally, some other features that didn't fit into uh, into those personas. So these were partially for us to monitor the platform and also just nice to have for the users. So some metrics such as the number of new components uploaded and the number of new component versions uploaded. Um, and we also try to add an element of gamification, such as listing who the top contributors to the platform are and what the top components each month were. Um, and with the second one, we also sometimes did um, we will sometimes do kind of spotlight pieces where we will take the top component of the month and write a little article about that about it and then share it around the community as well. Um, so these are the features. Um, as mentioned, the platform has been around for a, for a while. Um, I pulled out some metrics yesterday just to give you an idea of um, how it's used in the community. So in 2020, we've had over 7,000 visits to the homepage. We have had 100 and I believe this has more than doubled the amount of components in the platform that were that were there before. Um, and you can see here people are watching and reviewing components, um, so they're slowly starting to use those new features. We're also seeing more engagement in our communication channels for the platform, um, and we've had several internal presentations and discussions um, with encouraging participation. So just to round it off, that's kind of where we are today and how we got to this uh, this this uh, position, but where are we going in the future? Um, one thing we want to adopt moving forward is the concept of an open platform. So as I mentioned, we deploy to OpenShift, and that already has some characteristics of being an open platform rather than a closed one. So for example, we have uh, the concept of community images, which are Docker images produced and maintained by the developer community rather than the core platform team. So the core platform team does have some images that they manage as well, but they've also opened up uh, opened it up to the community to bring external images in as well. Um, and then these are uploaded and they're really easy to find in DB open source. So this it, the uh, DB open source has become a one-stop shop for, for those components as well. Um, 
in the future as and as part of our journey to cloud we want to apply this kind of crowdsourcing model to a wider scale and to some of our other key platforms in the bank um so for example our cloud landing zone provisioning platform and our sdlc platforms uh, so these are kind of, again more strategic platforms used and they're, they're ones used by all developers uh, irrespective of what part of the bank they are working in and we see DB open source to be an enabler for this kind of inner sourcing model because it provides uh, one place that everyone can go to, to to find what it is they're looking for. Um, thank you very much. I noticed some questions in the chat, but I haven't um, been able to read them. Um, as yeah, I have. I'll, I'll, I'll feed you questions. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> they're not just, they're, I don't think they're just for you. I think these are more general questions no, for all the, all the panelists. So thank you, Daniela. That's, that's perfect. That was, that was great. That was perfect. Um, so I am looking at these questions and there's some interesting ones in here. Um, one, one interesting question is, is Intersource only for developers in your banks or do other people in roles get involved? In other words, do you have, do you have non-developers, product owners, uh, at one point PayPal had all the admins that managed the bus list, uh, the bus schedule doing an Intersource project. Are you using it? Is anybody other than engineers doing projects in any of your banks? Well, let me say just a bit about why that was useful. Um, that there was a lot of news about Intersource, but people didn't really understand what it was still. And one of the things that was super useful for us to do was get non-engineers involved in Intersource projects. And the project that we started with was the bus schedule, which was maintained by admins who lived in Santa Clara and didn't spend much time in San Francisco. These are those buses, you, the famous buses that bus people from San Francisco where everybody wanted to live down to Silicon Valley to work. And most of the big companies that are headquartered in Silicon Valley have a bus system. Our bus system was difficult because it was being maintained by people who didn't have enough information to get it right. So we opened it up to the bus riders to intersource um, their own changes into the bus schedule. And that made the admins happier. It made the bus riders happier. It, you know, it made everybody happy. And all you had to do was learn how to use GitHub, which you know might seem, um, insurmountable but i find that people who are not technical who learn to use that simple tool um feel really accomplished once they master it it's it's not that much different than version checking on google drive you know uh you just have they just have to get the flow under their belt and then they're pretty happy to be contributing that way so um all right let's find one that maybe people can answer a little bit more broadly I'm Sorry, yeah. I was, I was ahead, muted. Uh, I mean, we have like it depends on what your definition of an engineer is. Like our QA uh, people participate and even launch their own inner source projects within Canada. I've seen a number of those. Uh, the DevOps engineers and system administrators are all working in that space and and obviously also contributing uh, to some of the larger inner source projects. So I think. Uh, to Denise, to your point, it is open for for everyone. Although I think the general engagement is is software developers because we are talking to code. I'd love to get more contributors, um, especially technical writers, into the documentation space. I think there's huge wins, especially for inner source projects, to have like a on staff, um, you know, somebody who really knows how to write documentation. And to to your previous point about uh, somebody who's good at communication, uh, that role is is really a great place. And a second, Arthur as well. I agree, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I, actually, in in um, in the original design, that thing that I talked about about the natural accretion of documentation just in the normal course of Intersource, one of the things you can do if you create an archive of that stuff is keep track of which stories, which bits of of documentation are getting hit the hardest. What's the most useful to people? And then give those to the technical writers to turn them into something that's a little, you know, more uh, polished. So, okay. Um, I have a question here from uh, Daniel Esquerdo, who is, of course, a metrics guy. Um, he says that we discussed collaboration and fostering re reusability. What is the usual ratio of developers versus developers collaborating in other business units? In other words, what percentage of the work that's getting done in engineering is happening in Intersource? And I'll say that um, at PayPal, before I left, it was about 19%. 
um, within a year after I left, it was up to about 25%. And um, I don't know where it's gone since then, because I don't have anybody over there anymore to ask. But, you know, I think it generally it grows slowly, and it's never 100%, because that would be silly. Does it, somebody else have an idea that they can speak about? Uh, I think for us, we don't, I don't have any percentages per se, but we have, as mentioned, quite a lot of these small projects that communities are collaborating on. And we also see people tend to follow this in a source model kind of within a business area. So you'd have one product, for example, that deals with payments and talks to a few products that are kind of nearby. And they tend to be teams that would kind of sit close to each other back in the days we were in the office. And they, they would sort of have an, an inner source model between their smaller teams that's more well-defined, but on a larger scale within the bank, um, that's where the number is probably a lot lower. Yeah, cool. I think one of the challenges we've seen with um, within a large bank is uh, a lot of teams and developers are focused on their immediate business deliverables. So kind of getting over that hump of, hey, I ran into a problem with this inner source project. I'm just going to ask for support versus I ran into a problem, I'm going to troubleshoot, and then I'm going to send a pull request to fix it. I think, and and this is natural in the open source world as well, right? There's always a, a big discrepancy between contributors and, um, and users. Uh, I do think within a bank, like within a company where people are paid to do it, they you do see more contributions than you would see in an open source project. But I think it does come down incentives right and that's that's ultimately what's going to help drive a more adoption uh and more contrib contribution great um we have a contribution on this topic from rob underwood who works at finos he says that one of the reasons that they started um at finos projects they started using github for meeting minutes um as well as documentation is to allow for more um adoption and consolidation and basically get people collaborating on non-code topics, um, which is a, a good first step to getting people comfortable with writing everything down as well. So um, that's great, Rob, thank you so much. Um, now I am gonna say that I, Aaron Williamson, uh, who is from OSOR, um, is uh, wanting to talk to us a little bit. Uh, he was supposed to talk to us at the top of the hour, but. Um, I, I sort of did this agenda backwards and I apologize for that again for the um, doing it that way. But, you know, I think it's been a good conversation. But Aaron, I want to give you a little bit of time to say what you were going to say at the, at the top of the hour. And um, we'll start with what you just wrote about how cool it would be to start calling um, programmers code rights. Yeah, right. I feel like it's a, it would be a very elegant and and flattering uh, characterization. Code right is so much like a playwright. No, I I'm, I was happy honestly for you to for you to take the take the uh, agenda away. I was really just mostly going to introduce you, but I also wanted to say that um, you know just sort of remind folks of what Denise said at the top of the hour, which is that this is the first in a series of uh, sort of. Uh, collaborations between InterSource Commons and the Open Source Readiness Program at Finos, uh, and that we're going to be doing this um, every other Open Source Readiness session. So we'll be doing the next one of these sessions on January 20th. Um, we've had a lot of interest in InterSource in uh, our members and financial services. Um, I think you know many of our members have found that InterSource is a really useful first step toward open source. Um, because even though they might not feel like they have all of the processes and people and procedures in place and, and institutional knowledge in place to begin collaborating on code externally, um, they can begin uh, building the, the skills among their engineering staff um, that are essential to collaborating on open source externally by collaborating internally on inner source projects. So, um, you know, we've seen this as a really helpful accelerator for uh, our members' path toward open source. So I'm really grateful to Denise Cooper and to Claire Dillon at, at InterSource Commons and to, and to all of our panelists. Uh, and for everyone who's joined, this is obviously a topic of interest. So I'm excited to continue this collaboration and, and possibly into a special interest group at Finos. Thank you so much. I um, think I can do last call for questions now. We only have about five minutes left in our time. So we've used the time um, successfully. I'll, I'll ask the one question I haven't asked yet that was um, pending. 
um, which is the sort of largest takeaway um, that that you have, each of you panelists. So we'll do those very quickly. And then if there's one more question after that, we'll we'll try to catch it. So starting this time with Pui, what's your biggest, biggest takeaway from your intersource engagement so far? I think one of the uh, the largest takeaway for me is that you know it, it we actually have to when we actually try to do this thing that you know where you get the communities to drive the whole inner source and get them to be a champion. I think one what the reason why we do that is because we want to break down silos in the bank, which where you have one team doing this thing. I mean, some of the things where Daniel has said, right, where all these teams, they are trying to solve the same problem again and again, which is why we want to go with this whole inner source model, inner source method. But I think one of the th th biggest takeaway for me is that we have to be very cautious when we are doing, uh, trying to get communities to share so that, you know, it doesn't become, it doesn't go from one form of silo to another where you have maybe a back-end community owning some stuff and then a front-end community owning some stuff. But, you know, it's actually also have to think about how to get all these communities that is, of a different discipline to work with each other so that we are we are all connected rather than operating from one form of silo to another form of silo. Thank you, that's great. Um, how about you, Arthur? I, I was just typing, I guess uh, I'll, I'll mention what I just wrote as kind of my biggest takeaway. I think to that point of um, how challenging it can be to get people engaged and doing that contribution back, what we found uh, really helps is rec recognition, right? And, and it really doesn't have to be anything huge, but I think um, even something small like sending an email to the person and and CCing their manager, right? Because in a, in for the difference between inner source and open source is we do have bosses <laughs> and letting our bosses know that, hey, the work that this person did uh, really helped us out and thanking that person specifically, but also letting their manager know really does go a long way. And even if the incentives maybe aren't fully aligned from an organizational perspective, you can still reach directly that person, right? And make them feel good about the contribution and that begets more contributions. Yeah, thank you so much for that. That, you know, um, Few people know this, but I actually worked for Microsoft for six horrible months uh, in, in 1994. And one of the things that I was really impressed with about the way that they ran things was that um, Bill Gates used to randomly reach out, read people's code at night <laughs> with his cup of malto meal, presumably, and, and, um, and then wrote to those engineers praising what they had done. And if you got a note from Bill, it was it was enough to keep you through the year. So even some very big companies know that praise is really important. And thank you very much for bringing that up. Um, okay, now Daniela. Um, I think my biggest takeaway um, kind of would be also to that point for the praises. If you get sort of the right people working on the right thing that they're really passionate about, you, you can just kind of you almost can just let them run with it and you just watch it grow from there. Great. Um, so it sounds like praise and and, uh, and allowing um, enlightened self-interest to run are the two things. And then um, lastly, Anthony. Uh, I think, yeah, that the, with um, Arthur, and Daniela said it's definitely an important one. Um, I'll, I'll, I don't want to I don't want to cop out, so I'll, I'll think of something new. And, and I would say, uh, through any transformation, you really need to focus on you know the, the process, uh, the technology. We don't, with, which is a great presentation. Thank you, uh, Daniela, for that. And um, I would say that the people. Like, so focus on those three things and try to change the movement towards more of a collaborative approach. And and then I would say then put that and try to measure it. And if you can measure it in some sort of way, then you, now you can always strive to do better when you after you start measuring it. That's a great closing. Thank you so much to all of you for bearing with me. And for this first panel, thank you, Finos. And um, I know we already have a calendar of next things. So keep an eye out for Aaron's uh, helpful reminders about the meetings that are coming up. We hope that you'll stick with us and you'll learn more about Intersource and maybe even offer to speak a bit about your Intersource journey. I think sharing our patterns and our processes is going to help us get there as an industry faster. 
So um, thank you all very much. And thanks as ever to Claire Dillon, who keeps me on the planet <laughs> when I'm doing things like leading a panel right after I fly. So <laughs> thank you very much to all of you. And um, we'll see you again soon.